As we continue to work our way through the Psalms, taking one each time, we come now to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is an incredible psalm that is all about words. Almost every verse in Psalm 19 has to do in some way or another about words, either God's words or ours. David starts out by speaking about how God has exalted the revelation of himself, first in general or natural revelation, and then by special revelation. By general revelation, we mean that God has chosen a witness to himself by virtue of his entire creation. And David covers this creational revelation here in verses 1 to 6. And by special revelation, we mean that God has also chosen to give more of a self-disclosure by virtue of his written word, which is shown to us here by David in verses 7, 8, and 9. And then following these two forms of revelation, David then ends the psalm by giving us a sense of both the wonder of the word of God and then a warning about not obeying the God of his word. And then in verses 12 and 13, David's own self-examination under the searchlight of God's word. And then his final prayer there in verse 14. So let's go through this psalm. We'll do it as quickly as we possibly can and yet try to um, be true to what this particular psalm is saying because it is one of the highlights of the entire Psalter. Let's go through some outline points, shall we? Number one is this. Number one, the wordless revelation. The wordless revelation. Look at verses 1 through 6. I want you to notice all of the terms uh, in verses 1 to 6, especially verses 1 to 4, which especially are related to speech. For instance, declare in verse 1. Declare. Proclaim. The latter part of verse 1. Speech. Verse 2a. Reveals and knowledge in verse 2b. Speech and words and voice. Three different word subjects in verse 3. And then words in verse 4. Now this, of course, is amazing. All of these words about words. Because the point that David is making uh, in the first part of Psalm 19 is that he's not even talking about words. He's really talking about creation, but in a sense, because of the creation of God, it blurts out to us in words that are wordless. It is a declaration of God's creation, so that there is nothing that you and I can do but say, this is created by someone greater than ourselves. What's so fascinating about all these terms that have in some way or another to do with communication is the fact that there is no audible communication. The revelation of God, His self-disclosure regarding His revelation, His creation, is coming through the profundity of wordless speech. One commentator calls verses 1 to 6, God's silent splendor. And it's so true. It's as though David is letting the readers, or in this case, because, because it's a psalm, his singers know that God does and that he can communicate the glory of his grand creation without uttering a word. It's really, really marvelous. And whether you're talking about the highest heavens, verse 2, whether you're talking about actual words or voice, 
verse 3, or whether you're measuring the fullness of the universe by a a measuring line, a yardstick, or even uh, something else related to something that God is communicating, He doesn't have to use words because it's so evident. It's so obvious. For instance, look at verse 1. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, they don't declare it in words. It's just obvious. The heavens, God's creation, all that we see above us. In fact, the latter part of verse 1, and the sky above or the expanse proclaims His handiwork. And even the the verbal ideas here are, they are declaring, they are proclaiming His glory and His handiwork. Verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The daytime is screaming at us. The nighttime is is bellowing its voice to us. And, And what is that speech? What are those words? What's the point? That there is a God. And that God has created all of this. That's why it's so asinine in Psalm 14.1 for it to say this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now that's not a theological problem. Uh, That's not a creational problem. That's not a revelational problem. That's a moral problem. Because someone who looks at the days, someone who looks at the nights, someone who looks up in the sky, someone who looks past the sky into the heavens, the Bible says it's clear. It's very clear. It's pouring out speech. It's revealing knowledge day to day and night to night. And then verse 3, There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Whose voice? Creation. Creation's voice doesn't have to speak, doesn't have to give us words, because it's obvious. It's obvious in so many ways. There is no inch of creation, no wordless line of speech that isn't screaming out to us that God exists. Isn't that exactly what Paul says in Romans 1? In fact, turn over to Romans chapter 1, and you'll see the New Testament version, we might say, of Psalm 19. Romans 1. This is, uh, this is the, the cinching up of the argument, as it were. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed. See, that's a revelation term. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is it that they're suppressing? Here's the truth, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to mankind, because God has shown it to them. How has He shown it to them? Verse 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Yes, Romans 1, Psalm 19 tells us in unmistakable language 
that there is a God, that he's created the world, that it's true in terms of the very creation of day to day and night to night with the sky above, with the heavens overhead. It's all created by God. And you don't have to have speech or words. You don't have to have a voice that's heard because it's so very evident. And therefore, there is no excuse for anyone, including the so-called fool. God is there. God is not silent. God has spoken even when he doesn't have to communicate in words. Verse 4, their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, if you're reading those two verses together, verses 3 and 4, there is no speech and their words to the end of the world. Doesn't that sound paradoxical? There isn't any speech, but their words go out nonetheless. What he's saying is that the earth screams at us with wordless speech that everything is very evident that God has made. You can take a measuring line. It's uh, maybe a yardstick, or maybe it's related to Isaiah's idea when he says line upon line, precept upon precept. You have a measuring of all of the earth. God has measured the whole thing. He's lined it all out, and it screams at us, there is a God, and even when there are no necessary words We are told in unmistakable language, the very language of creation itself. In fact, he even, at the end of verse 4, begins to talk about that which would be so readily apparent to us, and that's the sun. The sun, the S-U-N. In them, in these words that don't have to be words because creation is evident, in them he has set a tent for the sun. Uh, the sun is that, is that huge object that we can't live without. It causes vegetation to grow. It provides light. It does so many more things. The heat of our world. Everything that keeps us in check. And in them he set a tent for the sun. He, he set a, a, a kind of uh, covering. He's set for us in the sun or by the sun something that's likened, according to verse 5, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Um, uh, satisfaction. Uh, victory. This is, this is uh, the sun being something that is so evident in the creation of the world and so exciting and so dominant and so victorious, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber or maybe like a strong man who runs his course with joy. It's so obvious that God has created everything that only someone who wants to suppress the truth in unrighteousness will say there is no God. Just like someone who does exactly what they're supposed to do, run their course, and they do it with joy. Just like the bridegroom who comes out of his chamber, having total fulfillment, having total joy. This is what the son does. And I suppose maybe there's even a hint here that David is saying, not like you pagan nations around Israel, because you have the pagan notions that it's actually the son, the S-U-N, who is a God in and of itself. And he says, not so. It is Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord God, who's created the very Son. He's above it. He's to be transcendent over His creation. And that He is. Verse 6, 
Its rising, the sun's rising, is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun is that object lesson that shows everybody that creation, this revelation of God is so true, it's so undeniable, it's such a fact that no one can suppress this truth to the degree that it would be effective in the mind of men that there is no God. Absolutely ill-effective. It's a non-issue. Nobody can deny it. Now, you're going to ask me the question, you know, with all of that natural revelation, with all of that revelation that comes to us in nature, and Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 2 that it's not only true about what we see in our world, it's also true that God has made himself evident in the conscience of man. And yet... Even though that's the case, even though that's true, even though we have general revelation, the the general knowledge that there is a God by the very creation of His handiwork, by the very glory of that which He has done, and even in the conscience of man, it's so evident that there's a God. Unfortunately, that's not enough. It's not enough to cinch the deal. It's not enough to make the case totally and completely. And that's why David says, there has to be more. What do you mean there has to be more? Well, if you would say it like this, you would be true and you'd be theologically accurate. General revelation is enough to show you that there's a God, but not enough to save you from your sin. General revelation tells you that there's a God and that it is unmistakable, but it's not enough to show you about your sin. It's not enough to show you about the Savior. It's not enough to show you what you must do in order to be delivered from that sin and to have a personal relationship with that Savior. And that's why we need verse 7. And now he gets into special revelation. Special revelation. God goes even to the great length of providing not just general or natural revelation of himself, but now even a unique or special revelation, and this is the Word of God. Verse 7, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And this is what we might call in our second outline point, word-filled revelation. Word-filled revelation. There are no words as far as creation is concerned, but it's obvious. But now there are words. And in verses 7, 8, and 9, starting with that phrase, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, in three verses, we have amazing statements about the Word of God. Amazing statements. Six statements in verses 7, 8, and 9. Each statement containing three elements or three features and six titles of descriptions for Scripture. Look at the first one. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. There's beautiful Hebrew parallelism here. For instance, you have the law of the Lord, verse 7. You have the testimony of the Lord, verse 7. You have the precepts of the Lord, verse 8. You have the commandment of the Lord, verse 8. You have the fear of the Lord, verse 9. And you have the rules of the Lord, verse 9. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. And then what does it say about these various descriptions of God's Word? Perfect, sure, right, 
pure, clean, and true. And what does it does what what does it do for you? What does the word of God do for you? Revives the soul, verse 7, makes wise the simple, verse 7, rejoices the heart, verse 8, enlightens the eyes, verse 8, endures forever, verse 9, and is righteous altogether, verse 9. See the parallelism? The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true, reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, and comprehensively righteous. And that is what we desperately need beyond the obvious of creation. Now let's delve into this a little bit, because this is fun. These six statements, the law of the Lord, what does that mean? The law of the Lord. It can refer to different things. It could refer to the Torah. It could be referring to just the, the five books of Moses. Uh, could be referring to the whole of the Old Testament. And I think, just because of progressive revelation, that it can refer to the entirety of Scripture. So that the law of the Lord is referring to all of Scripture. And what about this law of Yahweh? What does he say about it? It's perfect. It's perfect. You could use other synonyms. Blameless, flawless, without error, sound, consistent, unimpaired, genuine. Those are, those are what I would call 100% words, right? purity, without error of any kind. The law of the Lord is absolutely flawless. I want a revelation like that, don't you? I want God's Word, God's law to be in my heart to such a degree that I see it for what it is. It is utterly perfect, 100% flawless. And it revives my soul. Revives my soul. Is that your experience like it is with me? That at times when you read the Word of God, when you so desperately need it, and it just revives you. It lifts your soul. It lifts you up. It brings you back to life. Notice also the latter part of verse 7. The testimony of Yahweh. The testimony of Yahweh. What's the testimony? Well, it could be the commandments. Maybe your translation says the commandments or the laws of the Lord. And when it says that they are sure, it means they're utterly trustworthy, completely reliable. You can bank on the testimony of the Lord. And you can bank on that testimony to make you wise. Now, we don't like to admit it, but when it says making wise the simple... We are simpletons, right? I mean, that's what, it, that's what it means. I mean, even in the Proverbs, it talks about uh, the simple person. It's not a flattering thing at all. It's really talking about the fact that we are so dumb that we constantly need information, correction, admonition, exhortation. We need the wisdom of God to ensure that our simple brains 
understand the trustworthiness of the testimonies of the Lord. We need wisdom. How about verse 8? The precepts of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. They are right. The precepts means statutes. Um, Direction. God's direction for life. God has a prescription for how we're supposed to live. And these precepts, these, these statutes, they are right, David says. That means they're upright. They're clear. I love this one because it talks about the clarity of Scripture. There's an old word that we don't use much anymore, the perspicuity of Scripture. That means the clarity of it. That when you go to God's Word, it provides clear direction. Clear direction. And what does it do for you? It rejoices your heart. Have you ever had that experience when you're reading God's Word and you're looking for that direction and when you receive that direction, it just gives you a heart of rejoicing? What a glad heart Scripture gives when you're availing yourself of it. Look at the latter part of verse 8. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Boy, a most comprehensive statement because of the idea of commandment in the singular. The commandment of the Lord refers again to the entirety of of God's Word, and it's so pure, it's speaking of the fact that it is so perfect, it is so flawless, it's like pure gold. When you avail yourself of the commandment of the Lord, David says it enlightens you, it gives you spiritual discernment, it illumines your mind, it it makes the path straight. Look at the first part of verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, initially when you see that word fear, you might assume that doesn't really fit because that's not normally a designation that describes the Word of God, and that's true. But I think what David is driving toward is that this is a metonymy. This is the idea of God's Word is so flawless, it is so clean, that it actually engenders the fear of the Lord in you. Isn't that the wisdom literature of the Old Testament? That the fear of the Lord is what? The getting of wisdom. And so when you avail yourself of God's Word, it allows you to have what we could call the fear of the Lord. And what's the fear of the Lord? I think it's two things. One, it's a healthy dread of God and also a holy awe or reverence for God. The immensity of God the power of God, the infinity of God, uh, that produces for us a a kind of healthy dread that He's greater than we are by far. And yet by the same token, we are saying God gives us such a view of Himself that we have this fear, this holy reverence of the God we serve. And the way David says here, the fear of the Lord is clean, clean, referring to the fact that it has no contaminants. No impurities whatsoever. It's clean. And what does it do for you? It allows you to endure forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then the latter part of verse 9, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, or comprehensively righteous. The rules of the Lord. His judgments. Uh, the, the fact that God, when He adjudicates something in our lives or in the world, 
His adjudications are true. Uh, They are faithful. They are reliable down to the last syllable. And what they do is they produce comprehensive righteousness for us. All the rules are set. All the judgments are there. God's Word stands tall. You know, if you wanted to put it in a, a New Testament verse, maybe one verse that sums up all of this about God's Word in Psalm 19, it might be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Go to your Bibles in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, because this is a kind of memory verse, or so it should be for us in our lives. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You may have already memorized this. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power... That which is so clean, uh, so clear, I should say, in creation, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, whenever you have a passage of Scripture that says that something is going to pertain to you for all of life and all of godliness, then you perk up, then you listen up, and then it says, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And how do I have this knowledge of Him? By which, verse 4, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. That's the promises of God's Word. God's Word, through His divine power and the illumination of that Word to us, grants us all things that pertains to life and godliness. Got an issue in life? Got a challenge? Need some direction? Are you stumped? Looking for a clue? Looking for hope? Trying to see the path? His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. He's calling you to His own glory and excellence, and He's done that by granting to you precious and great or magnificent promises so that through them, through those promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Boy, what a memory passage. And that's the New Testament equivalent of Psalm 19, that God gives us all of these things, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules, so that we see them as perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true because it revives our soul, making wise we who are simple, rejoices our hearts, enlightens our eyes, endures forever this Word of God because it is comprehensively righteous. Now, with that in mind, the third outline point is this, the wonder of the Word of God. This is what David says just as he's finishing those attributes of the Word of God, the sufficiency of Scripture, and he says in verse 10 this, more to be desired, this Word, this Word of God, more to be desired are they than, what? Gold, even much fine gold. It's so sweet to you, it's sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, my dear friends, if this is true, this is a confessional time, this is true, then why do we not avail ourselves more of this word? Why? If it's all these things... 
If it's perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, why don't we avail ourselves of it? Why don't we look into it more readily and more preciously? Because it is to be more desired than gold itself. There are people who will give up their very lives for the search of hidden treasure. And yet here it is, the hidden treasure of the Word of God. It's so sweet to us. It's sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than the drippings of that honey off the honeycomb. And you know what's more? It's more than that, the wonder of this Word of God. Proverbs chapter 3 says it this way. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver. Now he adds silver and her profit better than gold. In fact, it's even more. Verse 15, she's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Now he adds, verse 16, long life. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor, still more booty from the Word of God, from His wisdom. Her ways, wisdom's ways, are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And then verse 19, almost like the first part of Psalm 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped the dew. No wonder he says in verse 21, My son, don't lose sight of these. Keep wisdom, keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life to your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. goes on and on and on about the preciousness of the wisdom of of the Word of God, the wonder of the Word of God. But it also warns us. Look at verse 11 of Psalm 19. The warning by the Word of God. Moreover, by them, by the law, by the testimony, by the precepts, by the commandment, by the fear, by the rules, by them is your servant warned. Warned in what sense, David? Well, look at what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? In other words, who can do such a self-examination of their own heart and be anywhere close to examining it rightly? That's why the proverb says that man's mind is like deep waters, right? It's so deep, even our own motives, even what we're thinking, even how we process things, even uh, the, the hidden things of the darkness of our heart. Who can discern his errors? The answer is no one can, except the Word. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to pierce the division of soul and spirit, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only the Word of God can do that. That's why you're sufficiently warned by the Word. You can't discern your own errors. Only God can through His Word. And when He does, and when your motives are right... He can declare you innocent from hidden faults. Then he says in verse 13, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. 
Maybe the difference that he's making here between hidden faults and presumptuous sins. Hidden faults may be something like this. Sins of ignorance. Sins of ignorance. You, you weren't planning. Uh, you weren't purposing to sin, but you fell into sin. They were sins of ignorance. And what the Word of God does is it warns you about these sins of ignorance, these hidden faults. But they're also, according to verse 13, a servant who commits presumptuous sins. You're presumptuous in your sinning. That means it's a premeditated act of sin. You knew what you were doing. You premeditated it and you accomplished it. And now you are in deep sin. And the Word of God keeps you from either hidden faults and presumptuous sins. No wonder David says, let them, these presumptuous sins, not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And David, he had some great transgression, didn't he? He had some high-handed transgression. And when he did, it was because he wasn't availing himself of God's Word. I skipped over one thing, didn't I? Verse 11b, in keeping the Word of God, there is great reward. Yeah, there's a lot of negative here. Errors, hidden faults, presumptuous sins, having sins have dominion over us. I don't want to be guilty or blamable of great transgression, but if you avail yourself of the wonder of the Word of God in keeping them, in keeping this Word, there is great reward. It's like Proverbs 3. And then David gives what we call the the wish prayer in verse 14. Here's his wish. After the extolling of general revelation and now special revelation, he says this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know what strikes me about that? I told you at the beginning that almost every verse is talking somehow about words or words or speech. And now David says, when it comes to my words, the words of my mouth, you've talked a lot, God, about your words. Now I want to talk about my words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, not just what I say, but the very motives in my own heart, let the words of my mouth and the motives, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Let it be acceptable. You're my rock and my redeemer, Yahweh. You are the one who knows my heart best. And when the word of God pierces through the division of soul and spirit, it finds me out. Someone once said, the word of God will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from the word of God. If you're harboring sin in your heart, then all of these things, the attributes, the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, all of these things will avail to you nothing because you're harboring sin in your heart. And so David says, when I'm talking about both general and special revelation, here's what I want, Lord. I want you to allow my words and my meditation to be acceptable. You, this God, this rock, this Redeemer of mine, so that the Word pierces my heart, it deals with my sin, 
and I am laid bare before you, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Let's pray together. Father, this is a good thing. That you have so constructed your words, both in creation without words and in special revelation with words. We are found out. We're found out because you are showing us in creation the unmistakable reality that you, God, you are our rock, our redeemer. Your word is true. Your word is pure. Your word is right. And because of that, Our lives are open and bare before you. Lord, thank you for giving us the challenge of the wonder of the Word of God. May we constantly be nourished upon the words of the faith. Hold us back from hidden faults, sins of ignorance, and presumptuous sins, high-handed disregard of your Word. And let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, grant us an even greater desire to read your word. It is like gold to us. It is like the sweetness of honey. May it be that we love your word as David speaks about it here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.